Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. And this is the time of the service where we learn together from the Bible. And when you came in, you received our handout. We call it our bulletin, our sort of newsletter, so to speak. Let me move this over. And you'll notice uh, that the front has a somewhat ominous title. That's usually where we put our description of our sermon title. And our series that we are working on now is called The End. Sounds a little ominous, ominous maybe. And the end that we are talking about is really twofold. On one hand, if you've been here at Mount Hamilton, and some of you have not, or you may just be recent, you may know that since last September, so for this whole ministry year, we have been talking about the book of Matthew. The Bible is a book of many smaller books. They are written at different times, written down by different people. They have different genres. And Matthew was written by a follower of Jesus whose name was Matthew, all about what he saw happen while Jesus was on earth and as he rose again. Now, as we've looked at this book of Matthew, we've looked at all different things. We've looked at what Jesus taught about uh, in something called the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at what he taught about the kingdom. We looked at stories in his life. And as we get to the end of this season, in September we'll start something new, we are going to end the book of Matthew. And so that's one of the endings we're in. But we're talking about what Matthew records that Jesus said about the end. Specifically what Jesus said about something called, that we now call, the end times. Now when I say end times... That might be something that you have some sense of what I mean. And even if you're not used to the Bible or you're not used to Christianity talking about this, you see all versions of this all around us. You just have to go to movies, turn on TV, themes of the apocalypse, themes of the world ending. This is something with which we are familiar. And it seems like we always end up talking about it as our world goes on, that people are fascinated by when and if the world will end. Well, Scripture does teach us that Jesus said, he will return. Now, in some ways, to call this the end is a misnomer, because we actually see Jesus returning as a new beginning. It's actually the start of how we believe God wants the world to look. But we would say it's the end of the world in this way, the end of life before Jesus comes, even though I would call it more of a transition. And we call that the end times. And Jesus, in the book of Matthew, does give a lot of statements about what that time, as he is getting ready to come back, will look like. And it's found in the book of Matthew, uh, starting in chapter 24. And last week we looked at a big section of scripture in Matthew 24, and I painted a picture of what's happening as Jesus starts to talk about this. So right before this, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it's just the few days leading up to his death. Up until now, Jesus has been traveling all over that part of the ancient world teaching, and he's gone back to Jerusalem which was very risky because there were religious leaders there that wanted to uh, bring him up on charges of insubordination and insurrection, all kinds of things. But he went back, and uh, he didn't stay quiet. 
He began by going, we really went into the temple, their place of worship, and he saw people there selling things, and he turned the tables over and told them they were a bunch of robbers. And right before the passage we are looking at, he actually said to the religious leaders, he gave them this whole series of woes. He said, woe because you're hypocrites, and woe because you mislead people. And then as he's leaving the city, we read that as they pass the temple, which was this beautiful place of worship. It was considered, some said, even like an eighth wonder of the ancient world. It was so incredible. His disciples draw his attention, it says, to the buildings. Basically, they say, Jesus, look at the temple. You can almost picture them saying, isn't it beautiful? Look at this beautiful place of worship that we have. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone on that temple is going to be left unturned. So he predicts that it will fall. And then we get, so as he's leaving the city, they're leaving, and then he pauses at a place called the Mount of Olives, and he begins what is really a long speech. Um, And he says, um, the disciples, as they sit on the Mount of Olives in 24, verse 3, say, tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We talked about that quite a bit last week. So basically they say, so Jesus, when is the temple going to fall? And also, when are you going to come back? What is that going to look like? And then last week we looked at a whole bunch of verses where he talked about how there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be famine, and he talks about what it'll look like when the temple falls, and you can go back and listen to that sermon absolutely. There's lots of little details that you may have questions about, and today we're going to look at the next section of that speech. And here is where we're going to pick up. We're going to read from Matthew 24, starting at verse 36. So if you want to follow along, you can use the Bibles in the chairs. It would be on page 806. But you can also just listen. So keep in mind, they're coming out of the temple. They're on their way just out of the city where they're spending the night. Jesus says the temple's going to fall. They're like, when's that going to happen? When's the world going to end? Jesus gives a big speech about how it's going to be really hard and there's going to be really difficult things and there's going to be trials and tribulations. And then he says, starting at verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose name finds him, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to drink his, 
it begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect it, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a hard passage. That's not like a fun one. God loves you, FYI, just reminder. Um, that's not an easy one to look at. And there are so many things that I could say about this passage and so many questions you might have. But I'm actually going to do something maybe a little different. I'm actually going to talk about what we should not do based on this passage. That's where I'm going to spend a bit of time this morning. So let me start by saying what this passage does not say or what it says we should not do. And I think um, some of those points are going to come up on your screen. One of the wrong uses of this text, pretty blunt, wrong, is, the, is to develop a fear of being left behind. Now, some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, and some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. I grew up going to church, and I grew up in a church culture and season in the church where there was a lot of teaching around end times, a lot of focus on what that would look like, and how we could be ready. Now, it wasn't that my church actually taught a lot about it from the front. A lot of it was just kind of passed on and assumed. And I had a lot of interest in it, so I read a lot of certain kind of books and watched certain kind of movies. And the reason was that I was afraid. I'm going to be honest with you. I was very afraid that I would be left behind. I would lose sleep at night with the fear that I would come home and my family would be gone, and I would be left. And it was based on this verse that maybe you heard. And if you shared this fear, you got that anxious feeling maybe again when you heard it. And some of you are nodding. And it was when Jesus said, two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. And so what has happened is, based on this verse and one other uh, very small section in 1 Thessalonians, developed this uh, idea of something that is now called the rapture, which some of you may have heard of. And some of you, if you didn't, you can just kind of close your ears for the next while and not get confused. But if you have, the rapture quite literally uh, comes from the Latin word rapio, which was a translation of the word in the Greek that meant to be taken away in these passages, right? One will be taken away, Latin, it's rapio. We now call it the rapture. The rapture, quite literally, was the teaching that there was more than one phase to Jesus' return and that there would be a day and a moment, which none of us knew, when all of the Christians and all of the people that called Jesus Lord would be raptured to heaven and everyone else would be left behind to live through the tribulation Jesus talks about, and Jesus would come back later. You don't want to be left behind because then you got to live through the really bad stuff. You want to be raptured. And, of course, when you're raptured, uh, that would mean that your clothes was left behind. That would mean if people were driving cars or flying planes, that all of a sudden they would be gone, and it would be a very scary time in the world to be raptured. And I was very scared of this. I was scared of this for me, and I was, what if I wasn't ready? What about if I didn't get taken up? But also for others, what about my loved ones? What about if they weren't raptured and they were left behind? It made me very anxious, and I was not the only one. 
A friend of mine told me a story once that at the time I thought was very funny, but I confess is actually a little mean. And uh, he said that he went to Bible college with a man who was very obsessed with the theology of the rapture. He was very focused on warning people not to be left behind. And one long weekend, there was hardly anyone left in the residence. There were only four people there, and they were all hanging out in one room, and he went to the bathroom, the guy that was scared. And so all the other three guys took off all their clothes and all the jewelry and left it in a pile on the floor, and then they went and locked themselves in a closet. They were like, we're hilarious. Except when they came back to find this poor man rocking and sobbing. He thought he'd been left behind which was the joke they were trying to play, but it's not actually funny if you really believe that God just took all the Christians and you're about to live through a whole time of tribulation, right? And he said, then we actually felt really, really bad. And I was like, I feel really bad for laughing. And so, but I was like, I get it. I get it. I had that fear. So you might say, Leanne, but why would you say we shouldn't be afraid of being left behind? Shouldn't we carry that fear around, right? If this is going to be the situation that someone's going to be taken and people are left behind, we should be worried about that, and we should be focused on that. And the reason that I'm saying we shouldn't be focused on the rapture is that the Bible doesn't teach about the rapture. Point blank. It just doesn't. There is this verse, and there is another one in Thessalonians. And the idea of the rapture, and by rapture, I don't mean that we're taken with God. I mean that the Christians are taken first, and then there's a gap before Jesus comes back. The idea of the rapture was never taught anywhere until the early 1800s. Before this, there had been a woman who had a vision, and a man named John Darby heard this vision, and he was like, this is how it's going to happen, and he started teaching it. And some Christians, certain branches of Christianity in the West began teaching it. But before the 1800s, not a single Christian taught about it. So remember that, not one. What is Jesus talking about here, we might want to say then, when he said, well, what does it mean when we take him? This is said in the context of when Jesus comes back. That when Jesus comes back, we are taken to be with him. But it's not this gap. And that's an important distinction to make that I felt like we should clarify. And I have to admit that sometimes rapture theology frustrates me because I think a lot of it is found in the idea that we don't want to believe that Christians should have to live through hard things right? It teaches that the Christians will be taken first, and they'll be saved, and they won't have to go through the bad stuff. Even though Jesus says in verse 24, you're going to see wars, and you're going to see rumors of wars, and he says, in fact, some of you will be persecuted, and you'll be handed over to death. And he doesn't say, but like, no worries, because I'm going to take you up first. He's actually talking in this passage when some are taken about when he comes back. So that's an important thing to remember, and I think even beyond this, when we want to use a text well, we want to be careful to ever take a single verse and form a whole theology around it. That's a dangerous thing. What else does this mean we shouldn't do? So this brings me to another thing that I think this passage is telling us not to do, and quite literally saying not to do. So when we read this, we don't want to panic about being left behind in the tribulation. We also don't, and uh, you'll see this next point here, want to focus on figuring out when Jesus will come. And a lot of us do this. And in fact, Christians have tried to do it for centuries, and they're still trying. There are so many examples. Just yesterday, I googled Christian predictions of the end times, and I was brought to a Wikipedia page where there were over 200 examples. Let me give you some. 
In the fourth century, the bishop Martin of Tours predicted that Jesus would definitely return before the year 400. He wrote, there is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established, he will achieve supreme power. A few hundred years later, Pope Sylvester II predicted that the end of the world would come when the calendar turned to the year 1000. Some of us were alive and remember that people were worried about that in the year 2000, right? A German man named Hans Hutt predicted, a Christian predicted that the world would end May 25th, 1528. Then another guy corrected it, Michael Severtis, to 1585. These names you may not know as well, but some of you will know these names of very well-known Christian leaders. Martin Luther said that Jesus would come back no later than 1600. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said that it would be the year 1836 at the latest when Christ should return. And, of course, we could pick people like Pat Robertson, who said it would be April 29, 2007, and Jim Jones and all kinds of other people. The point is that they were all wrong. And that's not surprising because sometimes I look at these people and some of them are very respected Christian leaders who we've learned so much from. And I think, did they just miss the verse where Jesus says in verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Jesus said, I don't even know. How would we know? I actually think then it's ironic because wouldn't it be that if you predict it and God's like, I was going to come then, but now you told everyone, so now I can't come. Thanks. <laughs> like it doesn't even make sense, right? So Jesus, the whole point of this entire text, even when Jesus is saying, you know, one will be taken, one will be left, it wasn't designed to make us scared of being left behind. It wasn't designed to make us figure out when Jesus come. He was saying to his disciples, you're not going to know when it's going to come. That was the whole point of this section. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. You cannot know. Yet we still try to figure it out. And so it's so important then that we don't get overly focused on figuring out the day or the hour. We don't need to cross-reference verse 10 with verse 67 with chapter 23 on our wrist watch when the sun turns a certain thing and say, it means that the Antichrist is this person. Jesus is actually telling us not to do that. But that does then bring up, I think, a very reasonable question, and my third thing that I think we don't want to do. Then you might say, so why does he give us these signs at all? That's a good question, right? So if he then says, you're not going to know the day or the hour, why does he then, leading up to this, say, you're going to see this thing, you're going to see wars and rumors of wars, you're going to see false prophets, why does he give us things to look for? In fact, in, at the end of chapter the section just before this in chapter 24, he actually says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So after he's listed all these things that are going to happen, like I just gave examples of, he says, you know, just like when you see a tree and it starts to blossom and you're like, summer's coming, in the same way, when you see things happen, you can be like, Jesus is coming back. So why does he do that if he doesn't want us to figure out the day and the hour? It's a good question, right? Um, and this is when we need to be careful not to mistake signs for predictions. And let me see if I can explain that and what I mean by that. 
There is a difference in a sign and a prediction. A sign is something that we see and we remember that, yes, that is an indication that God is at work. A prediction is when it's like, this is when it will happen and this is when it will happen. And this is how it will happen and this is what it will look like and we can figure out the exact details. The purposes of signs are different than predictions. Predictions are to prove that someone is right, to prove that look at what I can figure out, to, to wow people. Signs are meant to help people see, in this case, where God is at work and that God is working. This is why, again, in the earlier part of the chapter, this is how Jesus describes all these signs. And it starts at verse 6. Remember, his disciples are sitting around. They're on the Mount of Olives. They said, when is this going to happen? And he starts saying these things. And then he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Birth pains. This is how Jesus describes these signs. And I think this is a very apt illustration. And here's what you get when you have a woman give a sermon who's had two children. A useful description of birth pains from a first-hand experience. Birth pains hurt. Amen? <laughs> that was hearty. Did you hear that? They hurt. So if you have given birth to a child, you know that contractions hurt. They hurt a lot. And you want to know when you're in labor, when is it going to end? Now, one of the things that we often laugh about at our house, for good reason, is something that happened when I was in labor with my first child, Josiah. I had not been in labor before. And it was getting more painful. I had a very long labor. Many, meh, won't get in that story. It was long, it was bad. So I had long labor. <laughs> and uh, as it was getting worse, the nurse said, as often happens, would you like an epidural? And an epidural is a spinal injection so that you can be numb and not feel your contractions. She said, the anesthetist is ready now. If you don't have it now, not sure when he'll be available again. So I was really on the fence because I was like, well, if I'm going to have the baby soon, maybe I can hang on. But if not, I don't know. Some of you have had the same reasoning. So I say to my nurse, well, how long is it going to be before I have the baby? You're laughing now. And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, like, this is literally what I said. I'm like, are we talking two hours? Are we talking four hours? Are we talking six hours? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, but like generally... Like, how long, does, then the anesthetist comes in, I'm like, just to clarify, like, how long do you think it's going to be before the baby comes? And he's like, I don't know. And I say, but again, like, typically, I think I was like four centimeters dilated at that point, and he's like, I was like, it's going to be like six hours, like an hour centimeter, like they say in the birth classes, haha, Lucy, I went eight, six centimeters in ten minutes, like, no. So I was like, you know what, you know, how long, he's like, we don't know. Finally, my husband's like, Leanne, you got to let this go. Like, you cannot know this. But I wanted to know. I wanted to know when the birth pains will end. But the birth pains, when you start having contractions, do not tell you when the baby's coming. They just tell you that the baby's coming. Right? They don't tell you when, but they tell you it's coming. And that's what these signs are. They're not there to tell us when, but to say, know that the baby is coming. Know that I am coming back this won't last forever, though you don't know how long. 
And so as Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's basically saying, when you are saying, how much longer will this last? When can this go? Don't panic. Don't let yourself be alarmed. These are the beginning of birth pains. I am coming. It doesn't mean I'm not coming. You're going to be tempted to say this is never going to end because I am. And I think that that's so important because we are so inclined to look and say this must be the end. And we are not the first people to worry about that. Sometimes when people comment that the world is looking so bad, which I say all the time and feel all the time, I think it's so easy to forget that we are not the first generation to look and say, it's never been worse than this. Think even of the first century. So just a couple of decades after Jesus makes these predictions, sorry, when he, well, he makes these statements and then he, he speaks to these signs, the very disciples who are listening, many who are hearing, will see in their lifetime, in the year 60, Laodicea, an entire city in their world, is destroyed by an earthquake. In the year 70, their temple does fall. There's the siege of Jerusalem in which 1.1 million Jews die. And it's so bad that it says women started eating the corpses of their babies. That's recorded in history because they were starved in the city. Or even in the year 79 when Vesuvius erupted and the entire city of Pompeii was incinerated. Can you imagine them saying, like, Jesus got to be coming back now, right? Like, this is what he was talking about. Or if we fast forwarded to the years of the plague in Europe, when one out of three of every person you know would have died, how many of them must have thought, this is it? Like, this has got to be it. And even in the last century, when the first world war happened, and then the second, and even the chaos of the civil rights movement, and those of you who have lived through terrible wars in your own countries that some of us in the West haven't seen, I'm sure that you said, this has got to be it. And we wonder if we are the first to ever wonder, but we're not. And what is Jesus' message to us then? What is he saying? We can take great hope that he will come back. And he says, these are like the birth pains. Remember, I'm coming back. And the whole thing that he wants to say in this passage to his disciples is this. He says, you are going to see terrible things. Don't give up. Don't take them to mean that I have forgotten you. You're going to see awful things. You're going to think it means I'm not coming back. That's not what it means. Don't give up. After I had my two children, one of my dear friends was about to give birth to her first child. And she very much wanted to have her baby at home and to have the baby naturally, which is perfectly fine. However, I also knew, having gone through labor myself, the challenges that come with that, because what her statement was, if it gets really bad, I'll go to the hospital. So I say to my friend, now it's going to sound mean, but you're going to know why I did it. I say, I need to tell you something. It's going to sound really mean, but it's helpful, I promise, because I knew how much she wanted to have a home birth. That's what we have to hold on to. I said, when you, you're going to get to a point in your labor where you're not going to say, I think I can just hold on a little longer. You're going to say, my labor is worse than all the other women's labors. You're going to think to yourself, this cannot possibly be what every other woman has felt. There is no way in the world, there is no way any woman has felt this bad and they didn't warn me. There is no way they had another child. You're not going to sit there and go, this is just normal, I can hang on another hour, right? You feel like it's the end. You're like, this cannot possibly get worse. 
I said, I'm not telling you this to scare the wits out of you. I'm telling you this so that when you have that thought, because remember, she didn't want to go to the hospital, you don't give up. When you think to yourself, this is abnormal, this is the worst, say to yourself, this is just birth pains. My baby's still coming. So she didn't give up. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. When you see these things and you think to yourself, this is the worst, it is birth pains. I am still coming. Don't give up. That's the whole point of this passage. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't address, there's a big point of this passage, but there's also the point that he wants us to stay ready. So what about the fact that he does say someone's going to be left and someone's going to be taken? It is very clear that when Jesus comes back, and I'm going to speak about this more, that those who follow Jesus will be with him, and there is a promise of that. And if we want to be with Jesus, we, will be, we have to choose to follow Jesus. And this passage invites us to do that. And he says to his disciples, don't stop following me. Don't give up on me. I want you to be with me. And so then he uses these stories, right? He gives an example. He says, so for example, if you knew someone was going to break into your house tonight, and you knew the exact time they were coming, you'd be ready when they got there. But you know what? You're not going to know exactly when they're coming. So you're just going to be ready. And then he says, he told the story, which I've already read to you. If there was a servant and the master went away and said to his servant, look after my house and look after all the other servants. And then the master was gone really long and the servant started to say, you know what? My master's not coming back. I can start treating these other servants badly. I can just forget about doing all the things my master has asked me to do. And then the master comes back. The servant won't be ready. And what Jesus is saying as we are God's servants, he says we keep following God. We keep following, and that is what readiness looks like. Some people, another thing that I guess I could have put up here of ways to misuse this text are the people who say, well, we don't need to worry about bad things in the world, right? If Jesus is coming back, it doesn't matter if it gets worse. We can just let wars happen. We cannot worry about famine. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want my servants to keep doing my servants' work and be ready when I come back. And so his disciples that are sitting there saying, tell us when this is going to happen. We want to be ready. He says, you're not going to know. There's going to be times you totally doubt I'm coming back. But just keep doing my work and keep following, and you will be ready when I come. And so if I could go back to, like, 16-year-old Leanne, who was absolutely petrified of the rapture, what I would say to her is, Leanne, don't try to predict the signs, and don't be scared by the signs, and when you see things around you that feel terrifying, remember that I'm still at work. That summer is on the way, like the fig tree. And I'd say, Leanne, Jesus coming back will actually be so good. This isn't a thing to be afraid of, but there will be hard things as you wait. And I'll say, Leanne, stop reading the books and stop analyzing the signs and just keep doing the work the Lord has for you right here and right now. And one day when Jesus comes back, You'll be ready, and it will be a good day. Let me pray for us. God, help us to ready ourselves in all things. We do not know how long it will be until you return, and we wait for that day when you will make the world right. But, Lord, help us not to despair. Help us not to turn our backs. Help us not to just give up and say, maybe it was just all not what Jesus said, but to trust you your signs. And when we see the things that are so hard, God, to 
to trust that you are in the that to trust that you are still with us even in the really hard things. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.